Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. Okay, it's my turn. I picked a story called The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees by E. Lily Yu. By the sheerest of accidents, one of the bees trained as a cartographer's assistant was an anarchist. It might have been the stresses on the hive, or it might have been luck. Wherever it came from, the mutation was viable. She tucked a number of her own eggs in beeswax and wasp paper among the pigeonholes of the library and fed the larvae their milk and bread in secret. To her sons in their capped silk cradles, and they were all sons, she whispered the precepts she had developed while calculating flight paths and azimuths that there should be no queen and no state, and that, as in the wasp nest, the males should labor and profit equally with the females. In their sleep and slow transformation, they heard her teachings and instructions, and when they chewed their way out of their cells and out of the wasp nest, they made their way to the hive. The damage to the nest was discovered, of course, but by then, the anarchist was dead of old age. She had done impeccable work, her tutor side, looking over the filigree of her inscriptions, but the brilliant were subject to mental aberrations, were they not? He buried beneath grumblings and labors his fondness for her, which had become a grief to him and a political liability and he never again took on any student from the hive who showed a glint of talent. Though they had the bitter smell of the wasp nest in their hair, the anarchist 20 sons were permitted to wander freely through the hive as it was assumed that they were either spies or on official business. When the new queen emerged from her chamber, they joined unnoticed the other drones in the nuptial flight. Two succeeded in mating with her. Those who failed and survived spoke afterwards in hushed tones of what had been done for the sake of the ideal. Before they died, they took propolis and oak apple ink and inscribed upon the lintels of the hive in a shorthand they had developed the story of the first anarchist and her 20 sons. Anarchism being a heritable trait in bees, a number of the daughters of the new queen found themselves questioning the purpose of the monarchy. Two were taken by the wasps and taught to read and write. On one of their visits to the hive, they spotted the history of their forefathers and, being excellent scholars, soon figured out the translation. They found their sisters in the hive who were unquiet in soul and whispered to them the strange knowledge they had learned among the wasps. Astronomy, military strategy, the state of the world beyond the farthest flights of the bees. Hitherto educated as dancers and architects, nurses and foragers, the bees were full of a new wonder, stranger even than the first day they flew from the hive and felt the sun on their backs. Govern us, they said to the two wasp-taught anarchists, but they refused. A perfect society needs no rulers, they said. Knowledge and authority ought to be held in common. In order to imagine a new existence, we must free ourselves from the structures of both our failed government and the unjustifiable hegemony of the wasp nest. Hear what you can hear and learn what you can learn while we remain among them, but be ready. Okay, so I don't know. This is a weird story. Even the sections that I'm reading are kind of hard to read out loud because you don't know where the where the, each sentence is going to land. There's like all these like, are they like considered inverted clauses or whatever? Where like the verb is like kind of tucked in there and you're like, where is this starting? Well, the first sentence that you read in the, the beginning, by the sheerest of accidents, one of the bees trained. That's You could call yeah. that a garden path. It's called a garden path sentence. Oh, where halfway yeah. through, you realize that you're supposed to reanalyze analyze the whole thing because yes. it, it feels like trained is the verb but right. trained is actually an adjective in that sense was. And the it verb is, is was yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that is done throughout this is a story that 
I think in past workshops, a story that it covers this much time and B's lives are short, you know, but, yeah, but it's we're generational. Co- <laughs> we're covering generations. And that's what's uh, interesting in this piece is that uh, we start with uh, hives as they were. And I think at one point it's like just the wasps, but they've like taken over the bees, whatever. We're covering eons of time for these individuals, these characters. And we would never encourage you to do that. So there's that aspect of it. But because it's told from that perspective, and maybe it has to be because the bees' lives are so short, it's sweeping. And so it's like a tell, don't show almost kind of piece. And uh, I feel like I didn't really know where it was going until we were introduced to this anarchist bee, right? Because we're just kind of like going through and it's like, this is what happened, you know? I guess it's sci-fi because, you know, the idea is that these wasps would go and explore and then when they would build their nests, they were just like so good at mapping that the nests themselves became the maps for the world. You know, they would like bring this like knowledge back and build them that way. And then like when people like cracked them open, they were like, oh, this is pretty helpful. Thinky <laughs> <laughs> wasps. And then like something happens where the wasps, do they all, do all the wasps die out? Or it's like the last wasp nest. Well, the kid throws a stone. So everybody in the yeah. village starts boiling wasp nests. And like the last one, kind of like they build a ship and sail down the river and set They're up like, a new colony Peace. yeah they're like we're under attack yeah i was actually reading part of it and i was like this is like colonialism you know like yes the wasps land in the new world and they enslave the bees that already live there destroy their culture kind of like incorporate them into their uh thing is like is this like a parable of colonialism <laughs> told the wasps and bees but then it, it went different ways so it went different ways but i but i mean like this is not real you know we're yeah. not this is not a so yeah it has to be drawing on <laughs> real things that have happened uh, not from the wasp and bee feud but maybe from like people in the world I don't know yeah yeah so like I definitely read it that way where I'm like okay if there's not a lesson directly from colonialism it's like the, the ideas are all there we're familiar with the concept at least that like these wasps would land on a f- unfamiliar shore and just be like hey you <laughs> <laughs> you work for us now <laughs> yeah exactly so this section like I said is I read because it was at that point that I realized maybe this is where this is gonna go you know and then you even have these little sentences that I read where it's like, well, by then she was dead. It's like, oh my God, this woman, she, this woman, this little bee lady, she, she raised this whole like uh generation. And wouldn't it be nice to just be able to whisper to your kids in utero? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're Go an anarchist now. Yeah. And then they just like emerge and they're fully formed. They're like, got it, mom. And they like do her bidding. But it is kind of cool how she's like, you know, kind of sneaking around doing this. And with all of these kinds of uh societies, we're familiar from a true scientific standpoint scientific standpoint of like uh, bee colonies work for the better of the hive right and like even wasps they work together and each is programmed to do something so like we're reading this and it's like it makes sense that this little like anarchist bee would find value in doing something that's going to last beyond her right she's not going to see the fruits of her anarchist labor but she's like I'm going to teach these guys and then they just go on and like do the thing and then like by the end what was kind of weird was uh, all of a sudden you know the story starts like you said with the little boy and then by the end we see like a, another human just like kind sister of, yeah the boy's sister <laughs> just plops back into the story and she's like oh shit like all the wasps are gone like don't worry i'll go find them and then like she brings them back and then like when the bees wake up they're like we did it and i'm like the wasps are gone yeah I, the ending was just bizarre to me the bees the original beehive found the remnants of the anarchist hive just like they'd all died over the winter the whole 
thing had been ripped apart. I, it wasn't clear what had happened to him. If they just didn't prepare for winter well enough, or if the some animal attacked him or whatever. And then, but then they found their writings, and they're like, "Oh, they had this whole kind of anarchist thing going on here. This is interesting. Write it all down. Write it all down." Yeah, I didn't know what to do with the ending either. <laughs> I, I didn't either. I guess like my point being that I still like the story. It's very rarely that like an ending doesn't land for me, and I'm like that. I journey find anything- was fun. <laughs> yeah, that I still find it like valuable or like that I enjoyed it. Usually I'm just so disappointed by the end. I'm like, this was a waste of my time. But but this was this I thought this was fun. I could even see this like being turned into like some kind of like a film, like even maybe for kids. Where, you know, when bugs there, there's just such like a yeah, maybe for it's kids. It's gruesome for kids. It is. It is. I mean, like there's so much like death and stuff, but I'm like, I'm also kind of like, would adults watch cartoons? Torturing bugs? the bugs. I know. I don't know. Like what they did to those messengers, the ambassadors that come out. And they like yeah. ripped them apart and <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's messed up. But I don't know. I, I enjoyed like uh the idea that these bugs have these rich lives and that there was like an overthrow. <laughs> I just like this anarchist bee. I like the idea that like you would crack open a, a nest and there would be something in there other than a bunch of scary wasps, you know, that like these humans wanted to learn from it. But mostly I think the reason why this didn't feel like a waste was that the writing itself, like we said, like they're all these like winding sentences is what uh, made it really enjoyable. And it's the kind of writing that is perfect for stories that cover this much time, right? Because otherwise, if you're not writing it in a, in a beautiful way, you're just giving us these plot points that are so boring to read. And I think a lot of times when people try to cover a lot of time, they do it that way. They think that they have to dispense with the beauty of the language and just give us the facts. And what they forget is that nobody likes to read that and fewer people like to write it. So I don't want to hear you tell me like a long time ago, there was one last wasp nest and they went down the river and they had to start fighting and they enslaved some bees. It's like, I mean, you could do that for us. And then you could tell us like, and there was an anarchist and she trained all of her sons to do this. And then they did it. You could say that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is all summary and um, and the yeah. language is evocative. It's yeah, you're really visiting with these bees as you're reading through their thing. Yeah. And it's not centered on a single character. Like a lot of the most advice you're ever going to read about writing is you got to have a good character right yes like it's all about character but we're just visiting these momentary characters like we get the third ambassador is of, of the bees is like this old wizened bee and and she <laughs> quote unquote negotiates with the wasps and um even her final request where it's like i beg you to wait three or four days to impose your terms i will be dead by then and will not see my sisters become servile people yeah yeah and yeah. then the wasps are like no no <laughs> And then she dies. She presumably she dies right after that. But by dipping in, like by having this this generational story where it's like a lot of time passes, a lot of like social events happen, but we dip into these little momentary characters, right? Like the the anarchist, the original anarchist's uh, mother, and um, even her tutor, the the one that you read, where he's like he buried beneath grumblings and labors his fondness for her, which had become a grief to him and a political liability, and he never. Never again took any student from the hive who showed a glint of talent. Like there's a tragedy in that, just that one sentence, right? Yeah. Like how he felt and how he's never going to go close to any of his students ever again. And like, but just like those little moments where you dip into a character, that's like, or even like dip into momentary scenes where like she's opening the wasp nest and like there's the foundress of the wasps. She's like stumbling in the cold out of there. And then the, the person grabs her and like, like just those little, like they're so evocative as 
moments too. Like you can summarize quite a bit. And we've read other stories that have done this where it's told lots and summary, but then you get those glimpses of like scenelets, little like momentary scenes or momentary characters that like that is where you're showing while summarizing, while telling, right? Yeah. There's all these characters that you think maybe are going to be the main character. Like when I was introduced to the anarchist, I was like, oh, here. But even she dies in the part that I just finished. You know what I mean? Like they each have such a brief history. You can even see like her 20 sons. There's 20 sons, but they're marching through the hive and like everyone's like, like, oh, they must be important. And like you get a sense of them as they're not individualized in that depiction, but you get the sense of them as characters, as like as collective character. It's, It's really cool. Yeah. I wrote down while you were on that spiel, like that it almost in that sense feels like a creation story or something. Oh, it's mythological. Yeah. yeah like when you're told things in summary that way and there are all, all of these players, but they do all play a very small role in what is like the mythology of the creation. Like I'm not trying to tell you about these individuals. They're they are important, but I'm, I'm trying to tell you how this all happened, you know, but it does it in a way, like we said, with the language that makes it really easy to visualize each thing. And we don't feel as if we're having to just sit here and digest. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a boring story. It feels, it still feels like a story. And it's, I think like you, like we said, it comes down to the language and like how it's told. And, and this is like the type of writing where I would say like, good luck, you know, it's like, I don't know how you, it's, it's so well done and there's dialogue and things like that, but um, it just summarizes so much. Each character though, without telling us who they are is immediately like a individual sort of, even among the hive, you know, the people, like you said, like the founders, like the people that we hear from in these dialogue sections are alive and, and fully realized, even if they're briefly on the page, which is also really hard to do. Think of all the characters you've read where it's like a, a novel maybe and you don't really like know fully who that character is until maybe like the end of chapter one, you know? And maybe they like there's some stereotypes at play or maybe this uh, writer is uh, capitalizing on the fact that like I said earlier, like we're all familiar with like how bees work for the better of the colony or how there's a queen, you know, and there's workers and drones, like maybe all that's benefiting her in these quick summaries, but it's done so quickly. Yeah, you mentioned that stereotyping thing. I think it was a Stephen King story we read for the podcast where the really quick description, like the initial description of one of the characters, the, the woman in the passenger seat, like I forget what the specifics were, but there was like three like characterizing features of that person. And you said something like he's relying on stereotypes. Like that is such a great tool <laughs> to, to, I mean, you know, you try to make characters individual, but you can use that by pulling in all the assumptions that the reader is going to make by just giving us like one little thing. It's like an emblematic characterization. I mean, if it's, was it the Stephen King one where they won the lottery? Yeah, they won the lottery and they're driving and then they crash the truck. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of what he did with those characters, I mean, they were poor. And so yeah, like, it's really, it. It was... yeah. So on some level, it's a stereotype to like triangulate these three details, but we know that they're given to us because they are supposed to triangulate that you know what i mean like maybe like in the real world like you see someone drinking mountain dew and like buying a lotto ticket and you assume you know everything about that person and you're probably wildly wrong yes but like for the point of writing it's like when it's intentionally spoon-fed to you and you know that it's like for that point like you can you can and should latch onto it and go with it type thing same way like yeah in these stories it's kind of like okay if we're envisioning like an anarchist I mean secretly doing things like it's not like that's a stereotype but that's a type of character we don't need to know much else about her he's not saying she's an anarchist but she also likes classical music like we're not supposed to read that detail and like assume that there's much else to her for the point of the story 
story. Well, her as an anarchist, like she doesn't behave as an anarchist. She still works within the bee system. She's a dedicated scholar of their whatever <laughs> they're trying to teach her. She's just doing this one thing off to the side where she's raising her 20 sons in secret. But like when we read, when we you meet a person, you might make a bunch of assumptions about them, right? But then you get to know them and all your assumptions go out the window or some of them do. Like they get replaced, they get changed as you learn more. It's the same thing when we read. The first details are kind of like they set up who we think the character should be. And then you kind of just hold those in the background. It's like, okay, I assume I know who this character is based on these details. Like if I'm going to make the stereotypical assumptions, but then the story might go on to undermine one of those or change one of those. And it's like, well, this person looks like they are poor, but actually they're rich. They they wear shorts and they drink big gulps, but they're actually a billionaire and they just like to live this way, you know, whatever it is. But when you're doing these quick snapshot things, you don't have those secondary details that develop later necessarily you can right so you do like you said originally i think you do wind up relying more on the the assumptions the reader is going to make about a character you give the most vivid detail you can and you let the care that the reader kind of fill in the background around it but that's the key is the, the detail you do give should be very vivid that's why the language is so important that's why the representation is so important like you are summarizing a lot and you only have one sentence to paint this character you have to give the most vivid details you can so that the, the reader even if they have to supply a lot of like the outside of it they get the inner kind of thing that seeds it all so that they know yeah and uh that strategy that we're talking about here is like an example of this being expertly done and we've also talked about it benefiting a writer who writes about like war we always talk i always oh, talk yeah. about it in terms of war where it's like those stereotypes come into play and usually the challenge there is if you want your story to stick out we have to trump those stereotypes that are, that are so common that we just like as readers it doesn't matter what you tell me about this person he's wearing a world war ii outfit like yeah. i'm making assumptions right but with a story like this it's like you only have so much time and you're gonna do it really vividly and yeah like whatever details you give us you can still be creative it doesn't have to be uh at the expense of uh your individual like flair for this kind of writing you know stephen king didn't just say okay cut to the chase these people are poor you know that's that's boring to read but like whatever key details you pull out you can still rely on the stereotype coming into play i think that's the key difference is like if you just say they're poor yeah yeah. That doesn't tell me anything. But no. if you give me the specific things that let me draw the conclusion they're poor, let's yeah. me come up with this. Like maybe I'm doing the reverse stereotype, but yeah. those are concrete, specific details that build that. They're not a generalization. I feel like we've talked about this as like an exercise and sometimes it's for short stories, but I feel like it, it usually lends itself more to bigger works like novels where maybe a writer feels as if they've fully envisioned, if not their main character, like a secondary character that's pretty important, you know, in their mind this character is fully formed and maybe they know who they are as a person but maybe they haven't gone to the extent of like envisioning their full backstory it can like help to write we've talked about this like vignettes or something about that character like just for your own work it's never going to like appear in front of the reader but it helps you envision that person fully so you might say like oh this is my main character Sally and she's stubborn well okay fine but uh, if you as the writer can envision why it is she became that way or like think of times in her life as a child where that was apparent it just makes for like a more informed writer, you know, then you can like proceed with that information and you understand your character better. And this story reads to me like our writer could have very well done that that kind of work on some level. And I doubt this writer did that because that's a lot of work. But you can sometimes skip those steps if you do realize that you've at least fully imagined the character. Sometimes we just like 
plop a character down on a page and we're like, yeah, this is so-and-so. She's got red hair. Or this is so-and-so, like, he's a scientist. It's like, okay, but have you, like, fully thought him through? Because it's not just an exercise. Like, unless this person is, like, their own unique self, what are you doing with them? How are you making them move across the page? And each of these little bees and wasps, they feel fully imagined in that sense. Like, even the example that you gave that I read where the guy's like, I'm not going to teach any other people with talent because this is what happens, you know? Like, she was my most brilliant one, but it, it was abused. And, like, we, we can, like, infer so much from him um, in that brief section because he seems as if he exists off the page. So using the stereotype is only beneficial because these characters are introduced in passing, but they can't exist only in passing is the point. Like, they have to also be yes. fully realized off the page for that stereotype to work quickly and uniquely, you know? Like, uh, like I said, Stephen King didn't say these people are poor. There's tons of poor characters. He said they drink Mountain Dew or, or whatever it was and they play the lottery and their cars broken down and they're driving each other places like those are concrete details because he's envisioned them fully off the page yeah i think that's the key we're using the word stereotype but i feel like some other word might be more appropriate i'm sure i just don't know yeah i don't, yeah, know. I, I don't know what it would be but stereotype is so just in general is reductive but we're talking right. about something richer something like it's an enrichment it's not a redu- reduction if that makes sense yeah so it's like reverse stereotype because instead of going with the generalization we're going with a specific enrichments the details that suggest the generalization yeah one time i remember like we had to write like a vignette or something in one of my fiction classes in college and i wrote a like a character like a vignette about a woman that a real woman that i had like worked at subway with and the vignette was the result of like having worked with her for several years but boiling her down to like one or two anecdotes or like phrases that she had said or just like weird little things that i was like all you need to know about this person is that they do this you know what i mean and yeah. like those people like fully come to life before you because you've met a version of that person. You can like think about someone that's like, oh yeah, he's so-and-so. He's the kind of guy that like, if he's going to haggle with you, like he's never going to give you something for free, but he's always going to ask for it to be free from you, you know, like, uh, like, a, and then you infer that this is a cheap bastard. You know what I mean? Like there, there, there's like ways that you can like boil people down to like an anecdote too. So it's not a stereotype in that sense, but it's like, if you have one sentence to describe like your best friend to someone, and sometimes it's like in an unflattering way you don't say like oh my best friend lights up a room like who the fuck cares it doesn't tell me about this person but like what's that one anecdote that you would tell someone about this person that just brings them to life really quickly yeah i keep saying details and vivid details but i think like the the section you just read about this guy who was um teaching the uh anarchist mother and his um he buried beneath grumblings and labors his fondness for her which became a grief to him and a political liability he never again took on any student from the hive who showed a glint of talent that's an, a specific action he took that's a specific like yeah attitude that he had after this right it's not like what he looked like it's not yes. you know this other thing and you know people's what they do it's a, that old thing you pay attention to what people do because that'll tell you who they are but it doesn't matter what they look like or what they say it's what they do yeah so when I think about that character vignette in particular, I think it's some of my strongest writing because it was a fully formed actual person that I reduced to a character on the page. But there's something about doing that that makes these people real. I think it's easier to think of these bees as like fully formed rich and then boil that down versus like uh, the anarchist bee. I don't know. I got to give her like a quirk. I think it works better to like start from the whole pile of the personality and then reduce it down. That That's richer than trying to just 
just introduce a character that jumps off the page that way. I think on some level, you have to do this other type of work, or you just have to have that kind of mind that like just does that for you. I know there's some writers who like they encounter a new, they're writing on the fly, don't have everything planned out. Character, like their main character walks into a room and there's another person there. They don't know who this is, but they just have that kind of like intuition, like, oh, I can just invent a person. Yeah. Or they'll pull from life. Like, oh, this person's going to be like my cousin Susie. And oh, Susie's this weirdo who does this thing. So let me put that in there. There's like dozens of ways to do it, but you can just do it on the fly in that way. But your advice about like having, if it's writing it ahead of time or even like making a note, like I need to come back to Susie and yeah. like make her more fully realized. Then you go back and you write a vignette that kind of explores who Susie is. And then you can go back to that scene and like enliven her. Yeah. So I think when we first started talking about stereotypes, it was in the sense that, uh, you know, we know a lot about how bees societies and wasp societies work. So when you call someone a drone, maybe we can stereotype them in that way. But the way that this writing is done in passing, like it's giving you like we like you said, those key details, those key actions that like bring them to life off the page immediately. And some of that is done by like drawing on things that we're familiar with types of characters doing. So it's like you you have one sentence. What are you going to do? Yes. It's, there's a scene in um, that um, Johnny Cash biopic that's Joaquin Phoenix and he's standing in the thing. He's like, you have one chance. And what song are you going to sing to like sell yourself? And then he starts singing. I think it's Folsom Prison Blues. But that's like, you have your one sentence. This character. Right. You as a character have one sentence. What are you going to step out on stage and do to kind of like make you a memorable character? Right. So we've gone off on a big tangent, but a lovely tangent, but I, but a helpful I th- tangent. Yeah, I think I think it all like kind of comes back to the fact that because this writing does cover so much time, and because like the, the ending didn't really stick for us, we still enjoyed it. It's because of this language, and it's because these characters are just like they they appear and then they're gone, but but we remember them. And how many stories do you know that are this short that introduce that many characters that are so easy to uh, recall? Yeah, that's a lot of characters. It's a lot of characters. I feel like a lot of times in short stories, we don't include that many, which I don't think we necessarily should. And even when we do include like these secondary characters or, you know, little subplots or like so-and-so's relative, they don't feel as alive to us because they're so briefly introduced and the way they're introduced is like more for the benefit of the story than the fact that they might actually exist otherwise, you know? So like, how would these characters exist otherwise? That's how you, you end up remembering them. This is kind of like my takeaway for the story is I love generational kind of storytelling. I don't get it enough. You know, most of the time it's single person story. It's like, you know, whatever. But just this kind of like sweeping, even mythological, like you said, but generational where you get to follow like social upheavals and changes and just the birth and death of civilizations to some degree. Like it's great. But the only way you can accomplish that is if you you have to introduce how many characters and you can only spend a little bit of time because you got to get on to the next thing. And so my take takeaway is just like the way to accomplish that kind of generational storytelling is to uh, reduce the moments because the the larger story is going to be bigger. Each moment has to have more in it, has to be bigger timescale, but smaller on the page, if that makes sense. So you have to reduce whole characters to sentences. You have to reduce turns of uh, import as far as social change into sentences or paragraphs. And uh, being able to just encapsulate those things in those small moments is how you accomplish that in the end. 
It's like if you uh, work in an office or something and you go home and you tell someone or a friend or whoever like about these people that you work with. The people <laughs> who you're telling, they're like, oh, so-and-so. They're like, I don't remember their name, but is that the person that did such and such? Yes. And you're like, yes, that one. Yeah. So it's like, how do you make these characters like alive and real? It's like, we know how to do it when we tell other people about real people. So do it with your, your characters too. You can't be like the redheaded girl in my story. Like, come on, give us something more than that. I'm not going to remember her hair color. I guarantee it. I'm going to remember the time that she broke the copying machine. Exactly. And then tried to hide it. Exactly. What a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that girl. So we do it in practice, but in writing, we we, we think we got to be more clever, or beautiful with it. Like, no, tell us what they did. That's like really memorable. Yeah. So I guess uh, that's my takeaway is do these characters exist for you outside of this story? Oh, good. Yeah. Whatever you want to do with that. You don't have to do this stupid exercise of vignetting. I say that as if I've done it. I haven't. But I feel like a lot of times my characters, if I like a character and if I really like have thought about them, they do exist that way where they're kind of like a um, caricature of themselves almost. They're larger than life. They can be reduced to these things that they've done. Those people are like usually the most fun to write too. You're like, like, what would this idiot do? <laughs> I think we unconsciously steal from our lives too. You know, like this oh, yeah, character I, yeah. is going to be like my friend so-and-so. Yes. We don't even have to think about it consciously like, like I just outlined, but you know, like you take a mannerism from somebody, you take like, yes. or you just remember, remember when that guy did that thing? Oh, that was so weird. I'm going to put that in the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you can make it a slightly different character, but even if it's a, someone is just on the page for half a second, right. there's lots of ways to do it that aren't literally writing the background out for a character or writing out vignettes where you explore who they are by, by so what they do but that is another powerful way to do it and i think it depends on the function the character is going to have in the story like a really important character you might want to spend more time with but somebody that's just like the cashier you can just like steal from your aunt's weirdness and then put that in the cashier and then move on yeah well thanks guys you're welcome If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.